Just the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. seven billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the history of fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when, why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary. So this past December, Sheng Zhen's Design Society teamed up with the China National Silk Museum, which I just want to say is the largest silk museum in the world. And they also teamed up with London's V&A, the Victorian Albert Museum, to bring the V&A's 2018 exhibition, Fashioned from Nature to China. And they added an incredible new section entitled Fashioned from Nature in China, Then and Now, which really celebrates the incredible innovations of Chinese fashion and textiles historically and today. And Fashion from Nature is the first dress and textile exhibition at the Design Society, whose deputy director, Zhou Rong, recently commented, quote, Design Society has endeavored to drive cross-cultural dialogues and critical thinking around design. The VNA and China National Silk Museum hold the most important collections of fashion worldwide. To present this exhibition in the pandemic, we hope to see these treasured objects in a new light, bringing intriguing wider dialogues around Eastern and Western fashion history, culture, and lifestyle to the fore. Through textile and fashion design, it encourages us to explore a more harmonious way to live with nature. Yeah, and Fashion from Nature takes visitors on, quote, an unprecedented journey through Eastern and Western fashion. And it traces the complex relationship between fashion and nature over 2,300 years, April. So, you know... Just a small amount of time. And this exhibition features an astonishing 400 garments and accessories spanning over two millennia from the third century BC to 2020. And these items come from the V&A and other collections. And then, of course, the China Silk Museum. So just an incredible array of objects on view that speak to both the natural materials of fashion and its incredible artisans. So this includes examples like a 19th century dress decorated with 5,000 beetle wings. <laughs> yep. And a leopard skin adored evening gown. But don't worry, dress listeners, the leopard skin is actually entirely handcrafted from thousands of beads. And today we are joined by Edith Chung, textile and dress consultant at the China National Silk Museum, and also the guest curator of the exhibition's new section, Fashion from Nature in China, Then and Now. Edith, a warm welcome to Dressed. Edith, hello, and thank you for being here. Thank you for your invitation. So first exhibited at the VA London in 2018, Fashion from Nature invited viewers to really consider the materiality of clothing. And and it really brings into sharp perspective the role that nature has played historically and today in the clothes we wear, from plant animal fibers to dyes, construction, and decoration. And while this exhibition focused primarily on European dress, Fashion from Nature in China then and now highlights the relationship between fashion and nature, specifically in reference to historical Chinese textiles and dress. And Edith, I'm hoping, can you please tell us a little bit about how this new section of the exhibition came to be? First of all, this is also a real um, surprise. Uh, Last year is the COVID year. We were actually in 
January 20th, I came back from Hangzhou to Hong Kong, and that's like the first news of COVID. And then, you know, we were all hoping, we all assume it will be over very soon, but it didn't. And I knew then that 2020's program would be canceled because there was actually four workshops that we were working on. And then by April, I just got a, got a call from the director and say, oh, do you, would you have time? Would you be interested? It's like, oh, <laughs> all right. So of course, immediately uh, we were connected to the design society team. And then very quickly already on, on the internet searched about this exhibition that I, I've heard of, but I haven't seen myself. But, you know, being being trained in the film industry like you, we were like very aware of the logistics and timeline and whatever. So very <laughs> exactly. quickly I knew it's it's going to open end of the year. So this already, uh, for me, I already have my mindset, uh, you know, what is possible. And um, they, they did send me the whole uh, object list from a VNA, which is overwhelming. 400 plus objects, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and <laughs> from, from a span of history. So I already know that uh, the Chinese session would be just a dessert because you'll be so tired. If you're quick, you can probably do it 45 minutes. But, you know, for people who are really interested and not familiar with the subject, you really need a longer time. So it's really more, more my strategy before I, I dig into the subject. And then the information I got was like the audience in design, at design society, which is in Shenzhen. Shenzhen is literally across the border from China. So I can leave home and if there's no uh, restrictions in two hours, I get to Shenzhen. Right. So uh, Shenzhen is the first city that the uh, Chinese government used it to, 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 to become modernized. You know, sort of they are very progressive and their average um, age is 30. Right. So it's a very different age group from uh, what the Silk Museum is used to. And they are also known to be uh, uh, not so much into historic things. So you all almost have to play a trick how to make them interested in historical things. So I decided it, it needs to be very concise and straightforward. Right? I cannot really explain, tell too much in detail about uh, uh, Chinese history. And because also uh, it's away from the Silk Museum, so they're very open to uh, collaborating with the design society. So I sort of have a free hand. So I understand the design society have this uh, mission. They like to have things from the East and the West, uh, but bridging history. They want contemporary and future forward sort of thinking uh, on the subjects. So meaning like a very open end sort of thing. So that's that's good for me also because I think that's more my approach than um, Silk Museum, you know, very sort of timeline, linear sort of direction. This already for me is very clear. We don't have enough time <laughs> for a lot of things. And through my years, you know, I more or less know the whole what the Silk Museum did every year since I've known them. So I don't even, in a way, don't need to look at their object list. I know what they have. I know their strengths. So I very quickly, I think probably within a week, I wrote them an outline 
and it was approved. And then we we began the work. So yeah, it 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 was very fun. I think both the museums gave me a lot of freedom on what to do. And can you talk to us just a little bit more about kind of the theme of the exhibition? Because it's really unique and not what I was expecting at all from an exhibition entitled Fashion from Nature. It really focuses on the materials. Yes, this is for me very interesting. Uh, The Silk Museum, although they've been, of course, focusing on silks, they have like a whole database of silks that they study from different parts of the world, you know, using very sophisticated scientific, you know, they can they can say where this cocoon came from, you know, with the isotope, I think, information. But then slowly they extended and because as they do archaeology, more and more fibers are discovered. Like they have a uh, different programs with institutes along the Silk Road, uh, providing them with information. Because sometimes you can have something, uh, they have one, I remember, I think it's the Ying, very famous Yingpan mummy that his clothing is uh, woven somewhere near the West, but the uh, fiber is from China. So it's like they unravel a cloth that was that came from China. They just want the fiber, the yarn, but not the pattern. And they re- reweave it. So something very interesting. But anyway, so, uh, and, and I myself, I'm very interested in the material because I always thought it's the material that drives you to create a technique to get what you want. So if you have like, if you have wool, which is naturally curly, which has an elasticity, you knit. Like Chinese never have knitting because our silk is not, doesn't behave like that and it's too fine. I was able, some actually pieces are are newly acquired. I talked uh, to the director and say, okay, for this exercise, it would be nice if we have this and have this and this and I had a budget that we can acquire those and luckily also for China you have the most modernized technology but you also still have groups of tribal people living in all all parts of China that still practice their primitive craft in a way so you can still gather stories and acquire things you know so it's just amazing. And in fact, there are a lot more than what I can put in the show. <laughs> <laughs> it's always hard to pick, I can imagine, to pick what to include in the exhibition. Could not have been easy. So in an exhibition focusing on the raw materials of Chinese fashion historically, I can think of no more appropriate fiber to start our discussion of the exhibition with today than something we've already discussed a little bit, which is silk. And China is foundational to the development of the practice, as evidenced by the China National Silk Museum. China is really foundational to the development of the practice and technologies of sericulture historically and today. I'd love if you could provide our listeners with a brief history and maybe introduction to sericulture as it relates to Chinese history. But my guess is most people don't actually know what maybe goes into the creation of one silk thread. Okay, all right. I must first confess, I don't wear silk myself. You know, it's it's too 
it's too luxurious. It makes me very lazy, you know. So even I was given silk sheets. I never slept on silk <laughs> sheets because I, I, I would think I don't want to get up, right? So I think maybe uh, my way of explaining the silk is if we go back to history where every different parts of the world have a different fiber, as I say, we assume Europe has wool and linen and India has cotton. You just think of the silk as a ready-made spool of thread. All the other fibers with the wool, the cotton, the linen, you need to connect the fibers so you have spinning. But luckily in China, we have the this, this silkworm. And the legend goes, you know, the, the silk cocoon that's on the tree fell into a cup of tea of the empress. So the hot liquid sort of dissolves the gum on the silks and the silk spool unravels. And that's where you get the silk. So it's, the, it's a filament. It's a continuous uh, fiber. Although I'm not good at giving you the... Uh, the, the figures of how many how many yards of silks in a cocoon. But if you can in, imagine naturally, it's a long linear thing that you can make use of. It has luster, it's very fine. So that's also, in fact, then lead into what sort of uh, craft you can do. Like I would say to Chinese, we don't have wool culture. In fact, we do, we, we have a felt cape from one minority, but in general, like, in Europe, you have felt, and that became the felt wool felt, and you have your felt hats. That's why you have all these uh, amazing felt hats, uh, shapes and forms, where Chinese don't have. But the silk, in fact, is so fine that you really need to manage it, right? So I think I would think that that's why we, the Chinese have developed these very sophisticated looms because the first thing you want to do is to organize the silk so that they are tied at both ends and you can control them by making them taunt. So we have the weaving loom. And that's also my explanation why in China you don't really mention about other techniques. You know, we don't have lace, uh, that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. I would say the whole effort is put into making silks. And of course, silk is for the upper class, it's for the privilege. And slowly it sort of form, it represent the hierarchy, the, the, the social system. And even if we talk about Confucius, it's about silks. It's about who can wear what silks, what color, what quality. And this also in a way explain why people assume Chinese doesn't have any fashion history. Like in the West, we, we say, oh, all the different shapes, silhouettes, and we don't talk about that in China. It's more about the silks. It's the fashion of the silks. If you imagine, I would compare with kimono. Though kimono actually came from China. I mean, the, the, the source, but it developed in its own way. When we're talking about the kimono, it's still the same form. Or if we talk about Indian saris, it's that piece of cloth, but... It's within that surface that you play with your colors, your textures, you know, everything. So I would say the cloth is more in, important than the dress form. One of the most amazing things that I discovered, which I still haven't finished this project, is during my own exhibition, I mentioned before in my studio, uh, at one point I studied all the characters related to silks in Chinese language. I would say uh, we, we call it the radical or the family, or, or I can explain it like a prefix. 
There are over 250 Chinese characters that has the silk radicals, meaning this word, this character originated from silks. So this really explains how important silk is. So the colors that we know, the red, the green, the purple, has, is in this family. So you actually name the color because you need to do dyeing on the textiles. So anyway, many, many words, including a lot of metaphors, like the character for tired, I'm tired, is from silks, you know, meaning <laughs> a lot of hard The idea of continue, even president. I always joke to Americans, your president is actually from silk. The president, the two characters, actually means if you're able to manage all these silk threads on the loom. It's literally like that. So these characters became really our language. So in a way, I, I, what I want to say, it's, it's really part of our culture. You know, that perhaps we don't know anymore if you're not, you know, I would read a newspaper and try to circle out all the characters. <laughs> with the, yeah. Yeah, it really just speaks to that really, really long history. And of course, it's a merchandise that it was carried along the Silk Road and spread all over the world. And all all queens and kings wear silks, right? <laughs> yeah. And to, I mean, we won't go into the Silk Road history too much here, um, although it's, it could definitely be its own podcast. But just to imagine a time when silk and textiles were a currency, were what you paid for things with, that you demonstrated your wealth and your value through the clothing you wore and the textiles that you could trade with. It's pretty incredible. And silk might be the most synonymous fiber with Chinese dress and textiles historically, but it is, of course, only one of many different fibers, animal and plant-based, used in the production of clothing and accessories historically. There are some wonderful garments on exhibition that really display this wide breadth of materials ranging from bamboo and wool to even fish skin. Can you highlight a few of the garments or accessories in the exhibit that kind of demonstrate that range of materials? Well, luckily, the Design Society put most of the items on their website. So it's on designsociety.cn, you know, what we're going to discuss. And of course, I need to sort of contrast with the VNA section what they don't have, you know, what is unique to China. So I, I, I chose bamboo, right, which is, you know, it rep represents the, the Chinese-ness. So the, the bamboo that we've chosen is actually an undergarment. Uh, if we can tell, say, it, it's like bugle beads, you know, as we know. Very fine. It's a bamboo that's like a needle-sized bamboo, but still with a hole that you can string it up. So it's a very special kind of bamboo. And so it's strung up like an open open work, net-like garment, which is worn next to your skin so that you can provide a barrier to your body fluids because you're wearing a very luxurious embroidered or brocade silk robe. And you probably can't imagine clothes weren't laundered before. I mean, the, the colors run, right? right. So you, <laughs> if you're, or if you're very... If you're the emperor, you wear it once and you never wear it again, so you don't have to worry. But in general, these are undergarments that, and over this uh, bamboo vest, you then wear layers other cotton things to absorb your body fluid. And but what's wonderful is I checked with Chinese opera practitioners, 
about this, and they say the older ones still wear this under their opera costume because、uh, again, the opera costumes are not washed. <laughs> <laughs> It's an effective method. <laughs> It's just so amazing. It's something very delicate, lightweight, and but made of bamboo. Yeah, and has a nice patina on it. Yeah. Yeah, and you mentioned that the,、uh, many of these pieces are online, and we'll of course provide a link to the exhibition so you can see for yourself. Some of my favorite pieces、uh, too, I have to say, are those ankle boots made of fish skin, which were pretty wonderful. Yeah, they were very wonderful. In fact, we we do have a whole set of costume. With it, but we don't have enough space. So I, I, I said, okay, can we have the only the boots? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the boots again. I think first of all, it's a very attractive material because now we actually here in、uh, Scandinavian countries with the salmon production, they are trying to rev-、uh, to see if they can use the salmon skin as a clothing material. You know how it can be processed. So、um, these boots belong to the tribe living in、uh, northern China on the border with Russia. So Russia also have a minority who use this、uh, fish skin, and they are the summer clothing. Of course, in winter in Siberia you wear the the many furs, but this is their summer lightweight、uh, costume. <laughs> and if you can imagine, they have no animals and not much plants going on. So. What do you do? You go go for the、uh, the fish and other. I think North American, Alaskan Eskimos, they have all, also use like seal and walrus intestines. They have a raincoat that's really nice the, with with guts. But anyway, this fish skin you can imagine they have the knowledge of what kind of fish, the size, the toughness of the skin. Skin.、Um, so the boots are made from one kind of fish, and the trousers another. And if you can imagine, the boots are really like a you you have these、uh, very、um, lightweight coverings for your nice shoes on、uh, rainy days. So very lightweight like that. But、uh, when they wear it, they put straw in it to line it, so it's comfortable. And they're more like the Tyvek paper. Edges don't fray, so you you have cut out appliques and you can stitch on them. Yeah, really nice. <laughs> and I should mention, although it's kind of obvious now, that this is a fishing culture, and so they're really using all aspects of the fish, right? That they're they're fishing, they're eating the fish, and then they're using aspects of the fish,、um, incorporating it into their wardrobe. And that's one of the things I really love about the exhibitions is that it shows this. Wide swath of dress and textile traditions across China, while showcasing these different communities and cultures. I think those boots are from 2018, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We actually we are able to acquire from craftsmen, so we have the information. Yeah, it's very nice. Oh, that's wonderful. One of the most fascinating aspects of the exhibit. For myself personally, has to be the color experiments that are conducted by the China National Silk Museum, and I I believe they're based on historical records,、um, and they're really recreating these historical recipes. Can you tell us a, a little bit about the significance of color to dress historically, and then how, if you know, the museum went about recreating these brilliant colors because they are incredibly vibrant for not being synthetic. Well, this again is just amazing. Sometimes, from my own interests, you know, things that I started to know suddenly became a project. I'm always thinking, oh, oh, 
the other people didn't know, I know. Okay. Anyway, this is a document uh, they found in the Beijing National Library. One-page students of uh, Director Zhao Feng was researching on um, Qing Dynasty, the last dynasty of China, about their clothing. That's her uh, focus. But she um, she discovered this uh, record showing on a certain certain months, certain year in the Qing Dynasty, that there's a log of how much uh, dye stuff, dried plants was bought, and what was the result? What color did they dye? So this becomes a very good record to identify all the dyes in the textile they have from this period. And the Silk Museum, most people think when they talk about China silks, it's so romantic, poetic, but in fact, the China National Silk Museum is a scientific base. Uh, a lot of archeological conservation goes to them. So they study everything, the fibers, the colors, the weave, and at the end to, to make a replica out of it. So it was also a time, and through Director Zhao Feng, he was able to get funding to buy the latest uh, sophisticated equipment to, for all these studies. Um, so what it meant was like, if you have just a fiber taken from a historic textile, you can study and read what's in it. And then, of course, you already, you build a database of knowing, uh, okay, with these qualities, this is the matter plant that dyed the red, uh, this is what, so they can do the reading. So this, this is what they did. They studied all their textile from that period. They did the experiments. And on the other hand, they re-dye things using those plants that they knew from um, you know, the records and from other historical information and then match them. And what's amazing is Chinese though are not very scientific historically, so they don't mention very clearly a recipe. So at that time, because I knew a little bit about natural dye, and then I introduced my teacher, uh, Michel Garcia from France, who's a chemist and historian and, you know, just, just the guru. And he came, we invited him to come to China and help them study this. And the amazing thing is, being Michel, he does so many research before he came, and he found out the this record was from the Qianlong Emperor. Qianlong Emperor actually have a translator. It's a French missionary who spoke Chinese. And it's actually, as a lot of Chinese records were made by these Jesu Jesuits or, or missionaries from around the world, like Matteo Ricci, they make records of the Chinese life and many things. And this particular person um, have records of the natural dye, which is amazing. So one thing leads to another. And then we also knew uh, Japanese. Japanese dyers still originated from China thousands of years ago, but they still practice it, you know, whereas in China, the art was lost and now sort of rejuvenated. But all these pieces together and... Uh, I was part of it, you know, and it, it's so much fun. And also, uh, actually, this year, middle in in a few months, they're gonna have their first uh, second exhibition on these Qianlong records, these dyes, because at the exhibition, I think we showed thirty three colors, but now they managed to replicate more colors. So I'm looking forward to uh, <laughs> amazing. <laughs> 
It's so amazing, especially, and I mean, I know a lot of our listeners are, are familiar with this, but Chinese garments historically are so incredibly vibrantly colored. And to be able to have achieved that again before synthetic dyes is just incredible. And the fact that they're, you know, kind of experimenting and recovering that last art is pretty incredible. And it's really central to the museum's mission. As I mentioned earlier, the Silk Museum is dedicated to not only preserving these historical garments, but also the many crafts and techniques that went into the production. And this is also evidenced by the many replica garments, which is just, it's mind-blowing. What you're going to tell us is mind-blowing to me. (laughs) So there are a number of replica garments on display that were recreated using historical techniques from the dyes to the weaving to the embroidery. And that includes this magnificent replica 18th century dragon robe that was worn by a Chinese emperor, recreated in 2016, but again, based on an 18th century robe. Can you tell us about this garment and any other replicas you would like to highlight? Because it's it's just, like I said, it's pretty extraordinary. Well, first of all, I think for the uh, for your audience, they probably all know that textiles are very fragile. So when we store them, they need to be under certain temperature and humidity and light. Right. So it's not easy to get a dragon robe to be shown. So when I asked the silk museum, of course, they have many dragon robes. And I said, why can't I have a real one? I don't want a replica. But of course, the real ones are uh, national treasures and it's not so easy to, to lend them anyway. It is a practice in, in China uh, because on the one hand, we need to make the uh, craft alive. And also this is, I, I think it's the term experimental archaeology, where you try to remake the things so that your mindset can go back. Although you have a recipe, you have to cook it so that you understand, oh, why did I need to do this step? So the uh, Palace Museum in Beijing would have the most number of uh, robes. And this one is a, it's a replica from a robe from there. And the robe is not in a good state. It cannot be shown. And so they, over the years, they've made many replicas. The replica of this special weave, uh, the cloud brocade, is in Nanjing. It's another part of China. But they are, over history, they are known for providing the, the, the royalty with their robes. And so the, the rope is studied, you know, uh, recorded everything. And then they start from scratch and, you know, and uh, with gold threads, you know, gold threads. And then you have how it is, how the gold thread is made. And, yeah. and, and I understand from this process, they can, although this rope is a later, we can say not so antique, not so ancient, but still you can understand the process of making and, ima- and, and match up with history, you know, how long it takes to make a robe and who it is for, all, all that sort of thing. And um, the other uh, piece that's quite difficult to explain is a piece of Han, Han Dynasty uh, fragment that they rewove using, oh, they excavated in a tomb a model of a loom, which we have never seen before, another system. Wow. And then because the Silk Museum is so knowledgeable in looms, they think this is a loom that wove this kind of textile, and they tried it out. 
and it's woven over two years. You know, every time I go and see, oh, they are still warping. Oh, they are doing this. <laughs> but it's this whole process. Like sometimes I know before they even say they have to raise the silkworms, because silkworms used to be not so healthy, so they are smaller, and the silk yarn is uh, skinnier. So if you just use modern silk, it doesn't, you know, uh, you cannot make a replica. So, you know, it, 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 for me, it's almost like this uh, CSI investigation. Everything needs to be studied and, you know, things that they discovered. So uh, uh, a lot of the pieces this time we show, we chose the replica because we think, um, first of all, it's not so stressful for, the, uh, for controlling the climate. And also it shows all the brilliant colors. You know, col colors that faded before when you make the replica, you can uh, show what they were once like. Although these replicas are masterpieces in themselves. I mean, like you said, this that emperor's robe, I think 98% real gold thread, 38 colors of silk. And then it was translated into a pattern. And then these cloud brocade experts craftsmen spent 14 months setting up the loom and weaving the material. And I don't think that includes constructing it and then the hand embroidery that went on top of it. I mean, it's just, it's such a beautiful expression of, of preserving that craft and legacy. And it's just exceptional. I'm, I'm obviously out of words. <laughs> Perhaps uh, one of the, actually the 14 months, including the most complicated things on the Chinese loom or in any other loom still, except on the computer, setting up the program, like translating your design pattern into that graph paper-like pixel, and then uh, giving this code to the loom is that very complicated uh, process. And uh, at the Silk Museum, they have a hall of looms, my favorite, where you have 20 real-size looms, you know, explaining how brocades are done over the years. And I usually like to tell the guys who are, who thought textiles is a ladies thing that the computer's forefather is the weaving loom, you know? So <laughs> it's just really amazing. And as you say, when you compare um, uh, the weaving loom, it's really meant for reproduction. Once you have the program on, you can weave as many uh, uh, yards as you want. But whereas the embroidery is more like one-off, more a personal uh, expression. And I'm glad you mentioned embroidery because that actually leads right into my next question because there's an entire section in the exhibition dedicated to embroidery and it really highlights both the symbolic significance of patterning and motifs and then also just the incredible craftsmanship and skill that really went into the production in each and every piece that like you just mentioned is, is individual. It's all done by hand. Can you please discuss the history and significance of embroidery in the Chinese culture? Let me trace back a little bit the uh, logic of the exhibition. We started off with the material, so you saw all sort of fibers. And then, you know, it, it's really, for me, it's like cooking. Okay, you, you, you have your ingredients, then you want to color them. So we did the dye, uh, and then with the dye uh, yarns, then you weave the cloth. When you have a cloth, you can embroider. So again, it's because we have silks. Uh, the embroideries that we show are all silks. Silks is so fine. The, the embroidery mostly are, are very fine uh, embroideries. Uh, again, I have too many, <laughs> too many that we can choose from. And I chose the one that really have, as uh, we say, auspicious symbols, because 
uh, all textile work is for women, it's for you to show um, how good you are. Uh, so it's part of uh, your portfolio to find your future husband. So women tend to embroider nice things so that you can give the suitor. For Chinese, very easy. When we see this pattern, we immediately know what you're saying. It's like, it's like your emoji on the phone. So we in Chinese, we have these four character phrases that we often use, and these are expressed in these embroideries. So like one wonderful thing, I, I chose odd things. You know, I, I said, um, I want people to be surprised. Like, what is this? Uh, so these earmuffs that are like two heart shapes linked together with a string is our ear warmers. So it's like a bit like your headphone, but in a heart shape that fits your ears. And we find very few pictures of people using them, uh, but they are, I think they're usually just gifts. And on them are the most uh, lovely uh, embroideries. Uh, including one that I'm sure you would like. It's, uh, it's two birds. They are the Mandarin ducks. So Mandarin ducks are known, um, they mate for a lifetime. They're always together. So it implies it, it's, it's a good sign of a happy marriage, harmonious <laughs> life. And then it has a lotus flower. So the lotus, of course, also have many meanings, including purity and sort of Buddhist hidden meaning. So those are really nice. And, and they're often made from scrap materials. They are leftover remnants from making your clothing. So they are surprising um, combination of colors and, and trimmings. And then there's another one that the Silk Museum didn't want me to show. But again, I want to surprise people. It's an elephant hat. It's for a child. I love that one. Usually, I think uh, in the States, you can also find a lot of museums have tiger hats. So tiger hats and lion hats are the most, uh, most popular ones. They are meant to be to ward off the evil because it's so precious to have a child, especially a boy. So you want to protect it. So, but often because they are homemade, the, uh, the animal becomes very cartoonish. And I even doubt the person who made the elephant if they ever saw an elephant. Right, so often they are, <laughs> you know, but I, 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 I like it because it comes from the heart. It comes from the, the mother, the grandmother. And in fact, the, the elephant hat is quite late, I would say 100 years old, and it's made with a synthetic dye silk. It's a fuchsia magenta color, and then it has lost its shade. So what I also want to say, when chemical dye done not properly, it still feels fugitive. Natural dyes are sometimes better. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but the, uh, if you go on the website, you see the elephant. It has really strange eyes with the beads and then teeth and then the tusks and then odd bits of ribbons. Yeah, I mean, you just described two of my favorite pieces. They're just, they're quite lovely um, and, and really kind of spark joy when you look at them. They're so, um, especially that child's hat, uh, that embroidered elephant hat. Edith, thank you so much for being here. This was such an incredible conversation. I know our listeners are going to get on the internet immediately and look up this wonderful exhibition. Thank you. So many wonderful objects to talk about, so little time. <laughs> and I will say that we did not actually get a chance to really dive into the sustainability aspect of the exhibition, April, 
but it was really an important element and one that we, of course, and our listeners will appreciate. Um, a huge, you know, we have a huge platform for sustainability on this show. And the VNA curators, Edwina Ehrman and Connie Carol Burks, really hope to inspire a collective consciousness in both consumers of clothing and their makers. So the greater fashion industry at large. And you really can't study the relationship between fashion and nature without addressing the fashion industry's environmental impact historically and today. And I was so pleased that they incorporated this message into their show. And Edith brought her insights to the topic to the exhibition's press release, saying, quote, the rapid economic boom in China has re-energized the fashion industry. One eye is looking at the latest trends from overseas. The other eye is examining local trends inspired by China's rich history. You know, so-called men farm and women weave is an idiom used in dynastic Chinese to symbolize a harmonious society. Reviving forgotten textile fibers and weaving crafts is part of the new sustainable lifestyle. The opportunity to participate in this project is overwhelmingly exciting. It is a feast for all textile and fashion lovers, end quote. And I could not agree more. <laughs> yes, absolutely. We 150% agree. And dress listeners, you will find a link to this incredible exhibition in our show notes. I highly recommend getting online and spending some quality time with these incredible objects. That is, of course, unless you can make it to Design Society before the exhibit closes in just, uh, I think, over a little over a week, June 1st. But that does it for us today, dress listeners. May you consider the relationship between fashion and nature residing in your closet next time you get dressed. Be sure and join us this Thursday for part two of our conversation with Edith, where we delve into the fascinating journey behind her career in textiles. April, Edith is an FIT alum. Oh, so cool. <laughs> I love that. And on a different note, entirely dress listeners, we remain cautiously, cautiously optimistic about a potential dressed trip to Paris in August. So um, if you would like to join us, please head on over to likemindstravel.com for more information. We do love hearing from you. So if you'd like to write to us, you can do so at dress at iheartmedia.com. And as you, most of you probably already know, we do post images on Instagram to accompany each week's episode. And you can follow us there at dressed underscore podcast. And last but not least, thank you to our producers, Holly Fry, Casey Pegram, and everyone else at iHeartMedia that makes the show possible each week. Catch you on Thursday. Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.